This week on a special bonus episode of the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group. Recovering DOD innovators. You've heard of the term, but what exactly does it mean? We've got two of them on the podcast to explain why the U.S. military is hemorrhaging innovative talent and their thoughts on how senior DOD leaders can respond to better embrace the transformative ideas of some of its brightest minds. It's Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop Podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm Billy Mitchell, Editor-in-Chief of Defense Scoop, host of this special episode. This podcast will take a bit of a different format from our normal headlines-driven podcast. Instead, I'm joined by a trio of defense innovation experts, two of which classify themselves as recovering DOD innovators, to discuss the DOD innovation landscape, the challenges that persist, and how the Pentagon can be more supportive of the innovators who want to transform the U.S. military and its use of tech for modern operations. My guests for this episode are Brian Beachkovsky, former commander of the Air Force's Kessel Run and now CTO of sports analytics startup Rhythm. Throughout the podcast, you'll hear me call him Beach. Brian Masters, former director of cloud and AI enablement for the Army's 18th Airborne Corps and now director of DOD at Applied Insight LLC, and you'll hear me refer to him throughout the interview as Masters. And finally, Megan Metzger, CEO and co-founder of Decode, a privately owned company that connects the emerging technology industry and government to drive commercial innovation in the federal market. Beach Masters, Megan, thanks to each of you so much for joining me here today, and uh, really looking forward to this conversation on recovering innovators. And I think if we want to have this conversation, we have to start out by framing exactly what a recovering innovator in the Department of Defense is. And Megan, I know with Decode, you experience a lot of these people come through the system. So let's start out with you. Um, Maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of a download into what a recovering DOD innovator is, how you classify them, and what they are recovering from. Sure. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation. You know, like you said, Decode has worked across tons of different organizations and those that are really doing innovative forward, forward leaning programs and projects. And more recently, we've just seen this almost mass exodus of folks that really started to make a difference, start to change culture. You know, they're running up against the bureaucracy and the wall and eventually end up leaving. And one of, I think there's so many lessons learned that we can take from the two Bryans and other recovering innovators about, you know, what, where did progress happen, but where did they hit roadblocks so that folks that are in the trenches now trying to make uh, things happen and be more innovative or those that are trying to lead, like, are there things that we could do differently so that we don't lose the incredible talent like the Bryans inside across the DOD? And Brian Beachkovsky, I'm going to refer to you as Beach here, therefore, uh, but I'd love to get your perspective as a recovering innovator. How is that recovery going? And, um, you know, how, how do you classify yourself as a quote unquote recovering innovator? Awesome. Well, thank you for having me here today. This is going to be a great conversation. I'm glad to be part of it. Um, and uh, I, I I do think uh, the the term recovering innovator is is right. Uh, it is a different kind of innovation on the inside than it is on the outside. Uh, and maybe we'll we'll get into that quite a bit here. Uh, but I'm, I'm super proud of what we're able to do. Uh, I'm the former commander at Kessel Run, uh, which is an Air Force organization uh, modernizing software practices uh, inside the Air Force. 
what we were able to do there and the value we were able to get to our, our user base uh, for the Air and Space Operations Center, which was our major weapon system we supported. Uh, and and uh, I, I think that the conversation today will, will highlight the differences of what that looks like inside the government context and where I am now at Rhythm, uh, where we're building consumer-facing applications, uh, what that difference is on the outside versus what it was like on the inside. Uh, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm really excited. In Brian number two, Brian Masters, I'm going to refer to you as Masters just for uh, clarification of the audio purposes. But tell us about your background a little bit and how you yourself are now a recovering innovator. Yeah, hey, thanks, Billy. And you know, as, as Beach said, super pumped about the discussion we're going to have. You know, working with Decode, Megan and Decode are absolutely rock stars in this space. And then, so I, I recently retired from the Army, and prior to that. I led large-scale tactical cloud migrations for 18th Airborne Corps, which is America's contingency corps, to kind of really move the ball forward in a rapid fashion to support the today's warfighter anywhere around the globe. And you know, it, it was you know, I say we were running downhill with scissors. We were moving fast, and just that that innovation. I love the idea of recovering innovators because it was almost a high, right? Because you're like you're doing things fast and like. You fail, but you get right back up and you keep running and you're running. So that, that concept of recovering innovators in DOD is, is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, did that for about two years. We, we had some pretty, some pretty good success with it, met, met some phenomenal people. And it's really this, this innovator you know, community across the DOD. It doesn't matter, we're all struggling. Like we're all trying to get somewhere in, in, a, in a fast fashion. So. Since then, I've retired. Um, uh, I lead a, a DoD portfolio for an IT consulting company where we do DevSecOps, cloud, and cyber operations. So, still in the space, but it is it is much different. Innovating on the outside, and then still trying to impact. You know what we did when we were all uh, green seers at one time. That's great. Well, thank you all for sort of the introductions there. And I think we want to talk a little bit about the good, the bad, and the ugly today. Um, so let's start with the good. Uh, you know, I, I know of both of your sort of legacy programs, you know, with, with the 18th Airborne or Kessel Run and, and the work that you've done. Um, so obviously there was some, some success that happened while, while you were um, with the, the U.S. military. And I would love to hear about how you were able to kind of um, make progress and get buy-in on, on, on ideas and you know what was the biggest the, the biggest things that sort of led to that success um, before you obviously became the recovering innovator how were you able to see success in those roles um, maybe we'll go back to you beach yeah so uh the the single starting point for any advice and where uh, you can make the biggest impact is get close to the user uh, and get close to the user from the very beginning and, and we had that benefit. Um, the, our users started as the uh, air, air refueling team inside the, the 609th AOC at the uh, CENTCOM uh, and how they were doing their air, the air refueling mission plans. And it was not trying to change the future of command and control for the entire Department of Defense or the Air Force. It was how do we get this group of uh, four or five people a tool to make their job easier. And if, if I look at where our biggest success was over the years, all the way up through uh, the, when I left, it was always providing something to the user that made their job incredibly uh, uh, easier to do or more effective. 
Uh, and it's the kind of thing that would never really be in a requirements document. So there are two, <laughs> there are two things that we did uh, that were uh, kind of emblematic of this. The first is um, we, we were able to provide uh, the, the air plan for the day inside our application directly. And what this meant is uh, usually there was a briefing team that would take that air plan, put it into PowerPoint, and then brief that to the commander to get approval for it. That was a couple hour process to take all that information and build out the PowerPoint. And then if the commander had changes that they wanted to make, it meant another iteration of making those changes and bringing them back. But we we were able to make it possible to brief the commander directly in the app. So if there were changes, uh, the changes could be made in seconds right there in the briefing room from the live application saying, here's how it goes. And we could eliminate the entire PowerPoint building process from their from their daily workflow. Those are the kinds of things that we never see in a requirements document that, you know, you, we need to be able to avoid building PowerPoint in the commander's staff. But those are what make real day-to-day -day changes in, in the, in the uh, user's life and how you build that, that strong relationship with the user uh, most succinctly. Masters on your side, how are you able to get success or, or, or get, you know, accomplish success in, in your work? And were, were, was there any way in particular that you kind of, uh, or anything in particular that you attribute to kind of getting the buy-in you needed to see change happen? Yeah, so similar to, to Beach's approach, he said a lot more eloquent than I'm going to say it, but it's basically, you know, find something about somebody's job that sucks right because that's where innovation starts so it's like what about my job sucks and then how can i make it better right and then innovation is is solving it today so modernization is focusing on the future innovation and innovation is solving it today so how do i make my job just suck a little bit less today using the tech or, or processes that we have available right so that was kind of the focal point so 18th airborne core we built what's called a dragon cloud and that's mission command systems in the cloud that all started from a captain in 101st Airborne that just says, you know, why am I deploying all this TSI stacks? Why am I deploying all this, this infrastructure to support it? Let me just re-host it in the cloud, right? So from that like concept about something about my job sucks and I want to make it better to, hey, let's get some buy-in, right? So we got some early buy-in from um, Paul Puckett, who's the director of ECMO. We got some early buy-in from PM Mission Command. And most importantly, we got command buy-in from the, the then uh, commander at 18th Airborne Corps, General Carrillo, who's now the CENTCOM commander, who's an absolute innovation nut, right? Um, and then his whole staff, like they they lived innovation. So it was really about how do we, we address somebody's problem in their job, make their job a little bit more efficient and deliver capability to the warfighter quicker. And then how do we provide almost a pipeline? I think DevSecOps, how do we provide a pipeline that we can like innovate rapidly? So in 18th Airborne Corps, you know, we addressed it with culture. We knew we had to have a culture that, that understood data as a, as a strategic asset and innovation was important. We had to have a literate workforce. We had to have some kind of governance and then we had to have an infrastructure to support it. So really once we established that inside 18th Airborne Corps, all supported by our CG, then whatever problem, whatever sucky part of someone's job that just popped up, we essentially had a, a CICD pipeline to deliver on that innovation at speed and scale. And, you know, we came through with this, this Dragon Cloud for Mission Command Systems Cloud, but it didn't stop there. 
you know, whenever we had to go to, to secure an airfield in, in a foreign country, we were able to use innovation in that, that innovation CICD pipeline to do that. Same with, you know, 18th Airborne Corps is an 18-hour deployment sequence anywhere in the globe. We were able to do that to solve a problem for another um, event that occurred, right? And then we were continuously able to build on that. So that's how, that's how we got after it is, is, what about your job sucks? How can we use some kind of platform or process to get after it? And then do we have the command support and culture to, to embrace those solutions? Yeah, one one thing you hit on there, Masters, that's perfect, is the rapid, the speed, and the in the having the, the CICD pipelines to be able to respond quickly. We talked to one user early on and we said, what are those parts of your job that suck? And essentially they said, why should I even have this conversation with you? I'm here deployed. I'm going to be back in three months and it takes a year or two to get any fixes done. I'm going to be wasting my time if I talk to you because nothing will change by the time I leave here. But we were able to show, we said, okay, just what if we make this button blue tomorrow? And we showed that it was blue tomorrow and said, see, we can, we are different. We can respond quickly. And that responsiveness matters so much because so many users in the DOD context are used to their complaints being unheeded and unresponded to. Yeah, I'd be curious because what what you both are talking about, we have just seen time and time again, and it's like, are you solving the right problem for the right people? But some of the most successful programs that we've seen, they have buy-in sideways, down, and up. So you're solving a problem that a user actually needs. And again, like Beach hit on it perfectly. They're not requirements. They're what sucks and the outcome that you need. But then when we're doing some of our trainings, we sit down and say, okay, just map out all the people in this ecosystem, they're going to say no. And you have to understand why they're going to say no. And then how are you solving their problem? So, you know, maybe up the chain, it helps with their strategic goal and how they're going to be measured in their chain of command. And how can you reframe the problem so you get their buy-in? Or maybe it's legal or maybe it's finance, but there's ways to get the buy-in. And I've never seen it work when, when you don't do those and like spend the extra minute to understand the motivations of everyone that could be your roadblock and, and figure out how to knock it down. Yeah, you got to get the, the no people to become yes people, right? And then the way you do that is, again, how do you make their job suck a little less, right? And then how do you, it, it's about immediate value. It's about, you know, getting that marshmallow, right? It's, it's how do we get the results quicker to, to get, you want the user's input, right? You want the, the champion's input. It's, it's how do we continue this thing called momentum, right? To snowball and snowball to where what General Carrillo would call irreversible momentum. And then that's it, it's just going. And then we just need to keep up. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's where we need to go. But to kind of the, Megan's point in the topic of this conversation is, you know, we're recovering DOD innovators, we're creating right. this momentum, and then, you know, we leave, but, but that's fine. Right, because there's other people that that'll pick up the torch and carry it. I'm, I'm positive. And I'd love to continue on the topic of the roadblocks because wherever you are, there's going to be roadblocks, whether it's skeptics, cultural resistance, you name it, um, policy, budget. It could be any number of things, but you have to try to tackle that in some way. So I'd be curious, you know, you both explain how you faced some of that resistance or those roadblocks. How were you able to overcome them to some degree? Uh, how about we go back to you, Masters? Yeah, I mean, luckily we had, 
an amazing, you know, sledgehammer to bureaucracy in our, our CG, right? So he had, you know, incredible support, incredible vision. So to having the buy-in, that was great. However, that, you know, you don't want to pull that card out of your deck until, unless you absolutely need it, right? So it's about relationships. So I think one thing that's critical in this space in particular is, is relationships when you have roadblocks. It's all right, understanding, again, we're going to go to innovation, understanding a problem, doing requirements or, or discovery, right? Do the same thing for the roadblock. So why do you think, you know, this could impact security? Security is often a roadblock with any kind of um, tech or, or software innovation. So, you know, what security concerns do you have? Let's talk about it. Let's see how we can address those, how we can mitigate those, right? So it's, you know, understanding the persona of your end user, but also the persona of, you know, that the support cast in order to, to deliver that product to the end user, right? So it's, I think it's about understanding that. So that's why I think we did really well inside 18th Airborne Corps is that, you know, we, we had a problem we wanted to deliver. There's a bunch of um, external factors. And then it was listening to them and understanding them. And then, you know, coming together as a cohesive team. And you know what, if you always put the, the warfighter up front, and think about the warfighter, right? And place that as your ultimate persona. I think it uh, it helps kind of neutralize those roadblocks. At least that's the, the approach that I took. I, I don't know, Beach, if you were different. Yeah, Beach, what was your approach? Yeah, so one of the things that we had the benefit of is, is Kessel Run was chartered with showing that DevSecOps could work within the government context. So we were we were given a team that had full authority from development decisions and acquisition authority uh, all the way through our own security team and our own network operations team that held all the deployment pipelines. Uh, and they all came to a common commander. So all of those issues around how do we respond to uh, to user requirements uh, in, in how do we prioritize those or platform upgrade issues or all of these things was held by one uh, one commander who is totally focused on on the users. Uh, so that was uh, that was a great way to show that it could work. When I came in, I was taking that proof of concept that uh, DevSecOps could work in the in the in the Air Force context, and then show that it can scale. So we went from standalone applications to a suite of applications on a common data layer, uh, and really grew. Uh, the the scope of what Kessel Run was doing over the two years I was I was commander uh, to go from standalone applications to an integrated suite to having uh, multiple instances up one supporting CENTCOM and one for USAFE uh, doing operational uh, support roles. Uh, the the challenge for the future is how do you sustain that? How do you take that model and don't make it? a special kind of experiment, a prototype system, but how do you operationalize it? And that's a real challenge because in the Air Force, uh, in the Army as well, across the DOD, the division between acquisition, the dev, and the ops of network operations is split at the highest level. And I've had this conversation with Paul Puckett in the Army, and I've, I've had it internal to the Air Force as well. If you are running uh, a, a support software, uh, the first common commander between the acquisition team and the operations, the network operations team, if those aren't put together in a special construct, is the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. 
because we have one MAGCOM, uh, Air Force Materiel Command, that is dedicated to providing new capabilities. And then once those are fielded, it magically goes over to the operational commands, but that breaks apart DevOps in its in its core. So we broke it by having a combined prototype unit that did full stack DevOps support. And I, I that is the question for the future is how do the services do that without a major organizational structural change? Because we baked in this, this ops acquisition divide at the very highest levels of the organizations. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I did a panel a while back on with recovering DoD innovators and the audience were senior leaders. And I really hope that there's some senior leaders listening today. And one of one of the most heartbreaking quotes that still haunts me is this gentleman was trying to do very similar work to what the Bryans are accomplishing and just ran out of gas, felt like he was hitting his head against a wall and said, if a senior leader had just given me top cover, I would have stayed forever. And what he really meant was what I kind of uncovered was a lot of senior leaders want to give the top cover, but they don't actually know what they don't understand the capabilities or what's needed to know what to actually do or what that means. So how do we help senior leaders know that, you know, hey, Beach needs all of this in a singular place because the way we're organized doesn't work to help make that happen or to say, we know what the no people are going to say. Can you like help knock it down for me? And I've seen that as a consistent thing. And I'm, I'm curious. It, I know both of you had a lot of buy-in, but I could, I've seen that also just hit a wall and, and really exhaust folks. Yeah, we, um, in AT Airborne 4, we had to kind of prove out like the value early with a model that we we're driving to that recently got implemented today with our data warfare company to where we have a company inside AT Airborne 4 dedicated to data innovation and, and all this. And really our, our command team had to take that out of hide initially to kind of get the training and the upskilling going, right? So really what we knew is we had to innovate and deliver solutions as, as close to the problem as possible, right? So Beach talked about, you know, going there and having an application and changing the button to blue or whatever. It's, it's showing that value, but the closer you are to the problem, the better understanding you'll have of it. The further away you are at the vice chief level or at your, your COCOM level, that's or, or major command level that's that's completely removed from the guy in the motor pool, the supply room, or at the range, right? You've got this conceptual idea of the problem, but there's the intricacies of it that really is, is what makes the, the, the person's job suck, right? So the closer you can get to the problem. So what we did in the core is, you know, we had our, our, our soldiers bring up problems, but then we would pair them either with a, a software engineer that was on the core staff, or with an engineer from a program of record. And then, so you have the person who can make the change with the person who has the problem. And then the, it's the right change at the right time that's effective, right? So that's what we kind of found was, you know, being able to make that change as close to the problem as possible. Once you start doing that, again, snowball, irreversible momentum, and then you get the buy-in. And then everybody thinks it's the, it's the greatest idea. In my experience, the um, the the issue wasn't that senior leaders didn't want to support. It was that the to to your point, Megan, that the 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 what was needed to support was so different from what their normal uh, their normal decision space was that it became it became hard to understand. Um, and the other the other issue, and I'm 
very sympathetic to it, is if you are in charge of acquisition for the entire department, you are not only doing this small software experiment, but you're also building the next uh, presidential airlift uh, and you're building the next uh, airborne radar and you're doing these things. And like, how can you understand the context for all of those systems? It, it's it's an impossible, it's an impossible job to know. So like that is, um, that is where, I, and, and it's very uncomfortable to do this as a senior leader, but to just, just go with what the recommendations are coming up. And but there, there's so much confusion, and the jargon is being used in different ways from different organizations. It's it's even harder for folks to trust their teams coming up because there's so much noise around that signal. So I think I I ran into that a lot where there was just I don't know what to believe because I'm hearing five different things, and and in. in what recommendation do you put together when you hear all those things? Which is why about halfway through my time there, we we worked with Platform One to do the what we called internally the this I believe memo. Because we realized with other DevSecOps units, we agreed with them on like 80% of all of everything. But what was being amplified were the 20% of differences between the different teams. And those were reasonable differences based on like tech stack choices for uh, user context or whatever was needed. But then what was being amplified inside the Pentagon was the 20% of differences. And we never really wrote down or, or were on the same page as innovators in the DOD space. What are the 80% of things we all agree on? And if we can just move forward on those and let us work on those 20% of things that are different, it would it would be very helpful. So I, I kind of want to go back to what Megan mentioned about the gentleman that she met at her her, her panel a while back, uh, because both of you inevitably left. And I'm curious, you know, um, what was it that that drove that decision? And um, like that gentleman, was there was there something that could have been done? Um, if you would have had the top cover or or something like that, that could have kept you uh, around. Um, Beach, you want to go? Well, so for, for me, uh, going into that job, I knew it was a two-year command tour. So uh, I did my two years and, uh, and, and then I looked at, I'm a reservist. I'd been in uh, industry for for uh, some time before coming back on active duty to take that job, and I looked around uh, at the options and possibilities for me back in the reserves, and and I would never have a cooler job, a better job, a more impactful job, quite honestly, than than what I had as commander at KR, uh, and because of that, um, I didn't want to be the kind of person who uh, wished they had gone out uh, when. Uh, when they had the pinnacle moment of their career uh, and were, were actually struggling with staff jobs or or the like. And I've spent most of my career in a staff job, so that's not belittling staff jobs. I can just tell you it's not nearly as cool as, as running Kessel Run. Uh, so it was kind of that pinnacle moment for me, and and I left. So quite honestly, there's there's nothing that could have been done to to keep me in as a reservist it was it was a great career it was the it, it kind of felt like everything on my reserve experience led up to that position uh and i was happy to do it and uh it was time for me to uh, go into retirement how about you masters 
Yeah, I, I, again, echo a lot of what Beach says. You know, I was coming up on 20 years. And then before, you know, I started this effort for 18th Airborne Corps, I told him like, hey, you know, I absolutely love this stuff. This is what I want to do. I want, you know, I want to have the impact and, and everything that goes along with what Project Ridgeway is the name of the program I was involved with just trying to do. Um, so I went in with that. And then just the impact, it was definitely the pinnacle of my career. I absolutely loved what I was doing. And that was the first time in my almost, you know, 20 years that it, I've had a great career in the Army, right? But I absolutely loved the value we were delivering to the warfighter. And I was at the time, I was a CW4 at the time. I was up for CW5. I knew if I made CW5, I would not do this. It would, it would be something else. And then honestly, this isn't even in my career field. Right. It's just it's just something I, I had a passion for. Right. So maybe it goes to talent management to the services. Maybe it's understanding that, adding more flexibility, seeing where our service members add the most value and putting them in that right spot. You know, and so I believe my my best way to, to continue this kind of effort was to retire, you know, build experience in, in the, the commercial space, the, the private space. And then, you know, that I believe would have my best ability to have impact in, in cloud infrastructure, software development, zero trust, defensive cyber operations, um, more so than if I were to continue uh, in the Army. Yeah, I, so I'm gonna maybe, like I, Beach, I know you wanna go out your pinnacle, but I think it just highlights such a, a talent management problem, like they're saying, because think of all the teams that work at Kessel Run or they're doing these rotations in, and uh, I forget, Beach, I can't remember if it was you and I chatting one time or who else it was, but we will we'll send folks to software factories, for example, and they learn to code and they learn this most amazing skill and then they rotate out and they collect urine samples in a cup. You know, and we, we develop all this talent and then we don't know how to quite use it and capitalize on it. So it's, it's sad to me that, you know, masters felt like I could have a bigger impact by going to the outside and bringing it that skill set back in. You know, how do we promote and retain and have a place for these innovators that actually made forward progress and still use what they learned to go do great things so they don't feel like they have to go make an impact from the outside back in? You know, so. Yeah, it, it is. It's definitely making progress. The Air Force is making progress on that. Um, in my time there, the number of people who got follow on assignments that were um, a little confusing dropped down uh, quite a bit. So we had a number of people that when they left uh, towards the end of my time, were going to Kobayashi Maru or uh, um, some of the other uh, development organizations. I think we had one go to level up. So we, we were getting some cross-pollination between there, uh, but that was a definite issue, uh, especially early on. Uh, and, and part of that is just that it is, it is a significant investment in upskilling someone. And the system right now doesn't have a great way to track or, or align that. So even where we were making those recommendations, it was a lot of working with the assignment teams and, or getting a good, a good request from a gaining organization. A lot of it was uh, in, informal um, processes, which is great that that's possible. Uh, but I think uh, until we recognize that 
sending someone to a coding school and giving them skills that are valued at a certain level on the outside should be tracked the same as as other career fields where that happens whether that's the 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 med units whether that's pilot training whether that's other specialized training that has a high uh, demand on the outside we need to have some way of talent management that um, uh, addresses that issue so as we sort of wrap up here, I'd love to hear sort of your advice twofold. Um, on one hand, your advice to senior leaders, again, uh, who who may be listening that um, they could walk away from this conversation and, and you could offer them, this is what you should do to better embrace your thriving innovators who have the potential to stick around and make change. Um, but also your advice on the other hand to those people who are you know, sort of at their wits end, sort of out of gas, bashing their heads against the wall um, and, and looking at ways to keep going. So I know that's that's two different questions to answer in one, but um, I think uh, if we can kind of uh, sandwich them together as sort of an advice segment as we close out, uh, that would be great. Um, Masters, we want to go? Yeah, absolutely. So I think kind of the advice to senior leaders out there that are, that are listening is the problems don't have to be solved at your level. You know, if we're thinking about the Department of the Army, we're thinking about joint staff, we're thinking about the high levels, you know, we always wanna, we, we kind of default to a top-down kind of solution, right? Or a top-down delivery. And I think what we found early on is obviously bottom-ups better, and then, you know, the user input, all that. So it's really more about enabling from the senior leader level, right? It's, it's knowing that we don't know the problem. And then a capabilities development document isn't going to give us the full picture of, of the problem, right? You have to physically go there and listen and then, and then take notes, right? So it's, it's about understanding at the top level, you're not going to fix every problem. And you have to trust the, the guidance and the input that's coming up um, as, as the ground truth, so to speak. And then from the, the innovators at the ground and at multiple levels, right, especially what we were calling the frozen middle. So you like your lieutenant colonels, your majors, your EAs, your E9s. We've been doing this for 20 years, and it's just the, the, the assumed way of how things are going to go. It's, it's really understanding that, you know, we all go to war together. We all fight together, right? And everybody's problem is, is significant and important. So how do we work together as a community of warfighters to address these problems, you know, to, to protect this nation? So... Keeping that up front, and, and as the innovator, you know, what really helped us in the 18th Airborne Corps is having buy-in, having support, and delivering value early and often. And then when we failed, like, we let people know we, know we failed, and then that was okay. We learned from it, and then we moved on, right? So that's kind of how I mushed that together. High level, you don't know all the problems, or you can't solve every problem. You got to go to the ground level. Ground level, we got to work together. Everybody's problem is important. No one problem is more important than the other. And then for the frozen middle, like there's an, there can be a different way to do things. Then we need to enable and support both higher and upper levels. So that would be, you know, potentially my closing comment too. For me, I think the 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 piece of advice I would I would make is we need to change how we start initiatives in the DoD. If you think about all of the initiatives in the DoD, they're all some variation on boil the ocean. We're going to connect every sensor to every shooter. 
we're going to revolutionize uh, the third offset, revolutionize the, the way the world is going to operate at warfare. Uh, the Jake, we're going to do all AI initiatives for the entire uh, joint space in, in one office. Um, we, that will not work. It will not work. It what, But this is the issue you run into, is the, the incentives, if you need funding to start a new initiative, they will fund a boil the ocean program because it has huge impact right but what they won't what they won't fund is airman snuffy at this organization is is writing his own excel macros because none of the tools we give that person on the flight line to do their job work and we could just fi fix that like if you could just give every unit an, an ability to fix their own problems and to build this process in there and to try things and some of them won't work, but that's cool. Nothing always works all the time, but find what works and then elevate that and make a way to make it happen. That is the way you actually boil the ocean. You give a million people a cup of water and say, each of you boil one cup. And by the end of the day, you have a million cups of water all boiling together, right? But we we don't ever approach that. And if there's a way that we can change that dynamic in the DOD, where you your, your ability to raise funding isn't, isn't tied to having an unreasonable expectation of your program, we could make a huge difference. And Megan, uh, you obviously deal with this a lot uh, with Decode. Do you have any perceptions or perspectives that you'd like to offer to close us out? I, I wanted to hit the, the like an air horn, like, yes, <laughs> yes, on, on all of that. Um, you know, we often say you have to think big, but you have to act small. But then, oh my God, what if it works? And that's exactly what Ryan was getting at. And all of this, all of the buy-in. So I think one of the things that, we highly recommend, and I've seen be effective in that, is success for lots of these efforts isn't that it worked. Success is you answered whether or not that could work. And if the answer is no, you still succeeded and you keep trying something until you find the one that does. And we're often just looking to blame and say, no, that didn't work, so we can't scale it or, or kind of point fingers. And I think changing it to an outcome for the end user, starting small, but then getting the buy-in, so, oh my God, if it works, we already know the path and where to go. Oversimplified, easier said than done, but don't give up. Well, hopefully uh, this conversation will, will inspire some hope in, in some innovators within the DOD or change some perceptions of senior leaders, who knows, but um, fantastic conversation. I uh, just wanted to thank you guys again, Brian Bichkovsky, Brian Masters, and Megan Metzger for your time today. Uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks once again for tuning into the Defense Scoop podcast, a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. The show is available on all the major podcast platforms. And if you don't currently subscribe, make sure you do so you don't miss out on an episode. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It'll help more people find the show. We'll be back next week. But until then, I'm Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.